Section 32 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brady Hulbert. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Neo-Romanticism, Johannes Brahms and César Franck, Part 2. 3. Brahms is to be ranked among the Romantic composers in that all his work is distinctly a reflection of his own personality, in that every emotion, mood, dream, or whatever may be the cause and inspiration of his music is invariably tinged with the nature through which it passed. The lovable, boisterous frankness, which was characteristic of him as a young man, was little by little curbed, subdued, leveled, so to speak. He cultivated an austere intellectual grasp of himself, tending to crush all sentimentality and often all sentiment. We may not hesitate to believe his own word that Clara Schumann was dearer to him than anyone else upon the earth, nor yet can we fail to read in her diary that she suffered more than anyone else from his uncompromising intellectuality. If she attempted to praise or encourage him, she met with a heartless intellectual rebuke. Not long after Schumann died, he wrote a letter to reprimand her for taking his own cause too much to heart. Quote, you demand too rapid and enthusiastic recognition of talent which you happen to like. Art is republic. You should take that as a motto. You are far too aristocratic. Do not place one artist in a higher rank and expect others to regard him as their superior, as dictator. His gifts will make him a beloved and respected citizen of this republic, but will not make him consul or emperor, end quote. To which she replied, quote, It is true that I am often greatly struck by the richness of your genius, that you always seem to me one on whom heaven has poured out its best gifts, that I love and honor you for the sake of many glorious works. All this has fastened its roots deep down in my heart. So, dearest Johannes, do not trouble to kill it all by your cold philosophizing. Clara exerted herself to bring his compositions before the public. A short extract from her diary will show how Brahms rewarded her efforts. Quote, I was in agonies of nervousness, but I played them, variations on a theme of Schumann's, well all the same, and they were much applauded. Johannes, however, hurt me very much by his indifference. He declared that he could no longer bear to hear the variations. It was altogether dreadful to him to listen to anything of his own and to have to sit by and do nothing. Although I can well understand this feeling, I cannot help finding it hard when one has devoted all one's powers to a work and the composer himself has not a kind word for it. End quote. The tenderness, which would have meant much to her, failed to show. He made himself rough and harsh, stern and severe that a man could write of him as, quote, a steadfast, strong, manly nature, self-contained and independent, striving ever for the highest, an uncompromisingly true and unbending artistic conscience, strict even to harshness, rigidly exacting, end quote, wins the adherent, 
wins loyalty and admiration, hides but does not fill the lack. Undoubtedly, as a son of a gloomy northern land, the tendency to self-restraint was a racial heritage. Outward facts of his life show that he was himself conscious of it and that he tried, in a measure, to escape from it. His love of gay Vienna, his journeys into Switzerland, his oft-repeated search for color and spontaneous emotion in Italy are all signs of a man trying to be free from his own nature. But that, in spite of Vienna, writes Walter Niemann, he remained a true son of the Siegert province, we know from all accounts of his life. Melancholy, deep, powerful, and earnest feeling, uncommunicativeness, a noble restraint of emotion, meditativeness, even morbidness, the inclination to be alone with himself, the inability both as man and as artist to get away from himself, are characteristics which must be ever assigned to him. There is something heroic in this, a grim strength, the chill of northern forests and northern seas, loneliness and the power to endure suffering in silence. It is an old ideal. The Thane, were he wanderer or seafarer, never forgot it was his duty to lock his sorrow within his breast. That it might lead and has led to morbidness, to taciturnity on the one hand, is no less evident than that on the other, it may lead to splendid fortitude and nobility. This old ideal has found its first full expression in music through Brahms. We come upon a paradox. The man who would express nothing, who has in music expressed all. It is striking how the man reveals himself in his music. The rigorous self-discipline and restraint find their counterpart in the absolute perfection of the structure, the polyphonic skill, the intellectual poise and certainty. There is a resultant lack of obvious color, a deliberate suppression of sensuousness, so marked that Rubinstein could call him, with Joachim, the high priest of virtue, a remark which carries the antidote to its own sting, if one will be serious. And the music of Brahms is essentially serious. In general, it lacks appealing charm and humor. Its beauties yield only to thoughtful study, but the harvest is rich, though often somber. He belongs to the poets, not the painters, in that his short pieces are saturated with mood, even and rather monochrome. The mood, too, is prevailingly dark, not light. That he could at times rise out of it and give way to lightheartedness and frank humor, no one can deny who will recall, for instance, the Academic Festival Overture, where the mood is boisterous and full of fun, student fun. The Passacaglia in the Fourth Symphony hints at it as well, and some of the songs, and the last movement of the violin concerto. But these are in strong contrast to the general spirit of his music. His happier moods are ever touched with wistfulness or with sadness. In such vein, he is often at his best, as, for example, in the Allegretto of the First and of the Second Symphonies. Such a mischievous humor as Beethoven expressed in the Scherzo of the Eroica Symphony, such peasant joviality as rollicks through the Scherzo of the Pastoral, such wit as glances through the Eighth Symphony, 
were, if he had them at all within him, too oppressed to find utterance and excite laughter or even smiles. As a boy, it will be remembered, he was often overbrimming with good spirits, full of freakish sport. The first three sonatas reflect this. Then came the illness of Schumann, his adored friend, and knowing what grief and suffering were, he fortified himself against them. He took a wound to heart and never after was off his guard. It cannot be said that his music is wholly lacking in humor. Reckless, unbuttoned humor is indeed rarely, if ever, evident. But the broader humor, the sense of balance and proportion, strengthens his works almost without exception. If it can be said that he was never able to free himself from a mood of twilight and the northern sea, it cannot be said that he was so sunk in this mood as to lose himself in unhealthy morbidness, to lose perspective in the power of wide vision. Above all else, his music is broadly planned. It is wide and spacious, not to say vast. There is enormous force in it, vigor of mind and of spirit too. Surcharged, it may not be with heat and color, but great winds blow through it. It is expansive. It lifts the listener to towering heights, never drags him to a static torture in the fiery lake of distressed passion and hysterical grief. For this reason, Liszt could say of some of it that it was sanitary. And here again, we must be serious not to smart with the sting. No musician ever devoted himself more wholeheartedly to the study of folk music, but he failed to imbue his works with the spirit of it. One has but to contrast him with Haydn or with Schubert to be convinced. The Liebeslieder waltzes and the set of waltzes arranged for four hands, charming as they are, lack the true folk spirit of spontaneity and warmth. For all their seeming simplicity, they hold back something. They are veiled and therefore suggestive, not immediate. They breathe of the ever-changing sea, not of the warm and stable earth. His admiration for Johann Strauss is well known. That he himself could not write waltzes of the same mad, irresistible swing was to him a source of conscious regret. Yet the accompaniments, which he wrote for a series of German folk songs, are ineffably beautiful. In them, he interprets the spirit of the northern races to which by birth and character he belonged. That which would have made him the interpreter of all mankind, that quick emotion which is the essence of the human race, the current of warm blood which flows through us all and makes us all as one, he bound and concealed within himself. He cannot speak the common idiom. Hence, his music will impress the listener upon the first hearing as intellectual, and as a rule, study and familiarity alone reveal the depth of genuine emotional feeling from which it sprang. Therefore, it is true of him, in the same measure as it is true of Bach and Beethoven, that the beauty of his music grows ever richer with repeated hearings, and does not fade nor become stale. It is not, however, intellectual in the sense that it is always deliberately contrived, but only insofar as it reflects the austere control of mind over emotion, which was characteristic of him as a man. One is conscious always of control and a consequent power to sustain. In rhythm, in melody, 
and in harmony this control has left its mark. It is to be doubted if the music of any other composer is so full of idiosyncrasies of expression. Strangely enough, these are not limitations. They are not mannerisms in the sense that they are habits, mere formulas of expression, unconsciously affected and riding the composer to death. They are subtly connected with and suitable to the quality of emotion which they serve to express. That emotion which, as we have seen, is always under control. They are signs of strength, not weakness. His rhythm is varied by devices of syncopation which are not to be found used to such an extent in the works of any other of the great composers. Especially frequent is the alteration of two beats of three values into three beats of two, an alteration practiced by the early polyphonic writers and called the hemiola. Brahms employed it not only with various beats of the measure, but with the measures themselves. Thus, two measures of 3-4 time often become, in value, three measures of 2-4 time. Notice, for instance, in the Sonata for Piano in F minor, the part for the left hand in measure 7-16 to 16 of the first movement. In this passage, the left hand is clearly playing in 2-4 time, the right in 3-4. Yet the sum of rhythmical values for each at the end of the passage is the same. It is to be noted that, whereas Schumann frequently lost himself in syncopation, or, in other words, overstepped the mark so that the original beat was wholly lost, and with it the effect of syncopation, at any rate to the listener, Brahms always contrived that the original beat should be suggested, if not emphasized, and his employment of syncopation, therefore, is always effective as such. He acquired extraordinary skill in the combination of different rhythms at the same time, and in the modification of tempo by modification of the actual value of the notes. The variety and complexity of the rhythm of his music are rarely lost on a listener, though often they serve only to bewilder him until the secret becomes clear. Within the somewhat rigid bounds of form and counterpoint, his music is made wonderfully flexible while by syncopation he actually makes the natural beat more relentless. Mystery, rebellion, divergence, the world-old struggle between law and chaos he could express, either in fine suggestions or in strong contradictions by his power over rhythm in music. In the broader rhythm of structure, too, he was free. Phrases of five bars are constantly met within his music. His melodies are indescribably large. They have the poise of great and far-reaching thought, and yet rarely lack spontaneity. Indeed, as a songwriter, he is unexcelled. In his instrumental music, there is often a predominance of lyricism. Though he was eminently skillful in the treatment of melodic motifs, of the small sections of melody, though his mastery of polyphonic writing is second to none except Bach, Parts of the symphonies seem to be carried by broad, flowing melodies, which in their largeness and sweep have the power to take the listener soaring into vast expanses. To cite but one instance, the melodies of the first movement of the D major symphony are truly lyrical. In them alone there is wonderful beauty, wonderful power. They are not meaningless. 
Of that movement, it is not to be said, what a marvelous structure has Brahms been able to build out of motifs in themselves meaningless, in the hands of another insignificant. The beauty of the movement is largely in the materials out of which it is built. Of the melodies of Beethoven, it may be said they have infinite depth. Of those of Schubert, that they have perennial freshness. Of those of Schumann, romance and tenderness. But of Brahms, that they have power, the power of the eagle to soar. They are frequently composed of the tones of a chord, sometimes of the simple tonic triad. Notice in this regard the first melodies of all the symphonies, the song's sapphic ode, Die Meinacht, Wiegenlied, and countless others. His harmonies are, as would be expected from one to whom softness was a stranger, for the most part diatonic. They are virile, almost never sensuous. Sharp dissonances are frequent, augmented intervals rare, and often his harmonies are made thick by doubling the third even in very low registers. There is at times a strong suggestion of the old modal harmony, especially in works written for chorus without accompaniment. Major and minor alternate unexpectedly, the two modes seeming in his music interchangeable. He is fond of extremely wide intervals, very low and very high tones at once, and the empty places without sound between call forth the spirit of barren moorland, the mystery of dreary places, of the deserted sea. In all Brahms's music, whether for piano, for voices, combinations of instruments, or for orchestra, these idiosyncrasies are present. They are easily recognized, easily seized upon by the critic, but taken together they do not constitute the sum of Brahms's genius. They are expressive of his broad intellectual grasp, but the essence of his genius consists far rather in a powerful, deep, and genuine emotional feeling, which is seldom lacking in all that he composed. It is hard to get at, hard for the player, the singer, and the leader to reveal, but the fact nonetheless remains that Brahms is one of the very great composers, one who truly had something to say. One may feel at times that he set himself deliberately to say it in a manner new and strange, but it is nonetheless evident to one who has given thought to the interpretation of what lies behind his music, that the form of his utterance, though at first seemingly awkward and willful, is perfectly and marvelously fitting. 4. Brahms's pianoforte works are, with comparatively few exceptions, in small forms. There are rhapsodies and ballads and many intermezzi and capriccios. Unlike Schumann, he never gives these pieces a poetic title to suggest the mood in which they are steeped, though sometimes, rarely indeed, he prefixes a motto, a stanza from a poem, as in the Andante of the F minor sonata, or the title of a poem, as in the ballad that is called Edward, or the intermezzo in E-flat major, both suggested by Scotch poems. The pieces are almost without exception difficult. The ordinary technique of the pianist is hardly serviceable. For common formulas of accompaniment, he seldom uses, but rather unusual and wide groupings of notes 
which call for the greatest and most rapid freedom of the arm and a largeness of hand. Mixed rhythms abound and difficult cross accents. For one even who has mastered the technical difficulties of Chopin and Liszt, new difficulties appear. He seems to stand out of the beaten path of virtuosity. His aversion to display has carefully stripped all his music of conventional flourish and adornment, and his pianoforte music is seldom brilliant, never showy, but rather somber. What it lacks in brilliance, on the other hand, it makes up in richness and sonority, and when mastered will prove, though ungrateful for the hand, adapted to the most intimate spirit of the instrument. The two sets of variations on a theme of Paganini make the utmost demands upon hand and head of the player. It may be questioned if any music for the piano is technically more difficult. One has only to compare them with the Liszt Paganini studies to realize how extraordinarily new Brahms's attitude toward the piano was. In Liszt, transcendent, blinding virtuosity. In Brahms, inexhaustible richness. The songs, too, are not less difficult and not more brilliant. The breadth of phrases and melodies require of the singer a tremendous power to sustain, and yet they are so essentially lyrical that the finest shading is necessary fully to bring out the depth of the feeling in them. The accompaniments are complicated by the same idiosyncrasies of rhythm and spacing which are met with in the piano music. Yet they are so contrived that the melodies are not taken and woven into them, as in so many of the exquisite songs of Schumann, but that the melodies are set off by them. In writing for choruses or for groups of voices, he manifested a skill well-nigh equal to that of Bach and Handel. He seems often to have gone back to the part songs of the 16th century for his models. Compared with the scores of Wagner, his orchestral works are somber and gray. The comparison has led many to the conclusion that Brahms had no command of orchestral color. This is hardly true. Vivid coloring is for the most part lacking, but such coloring would be wholly out of place in the expression of the emotion which gives his symphonies their grandeur. His art of orchestration, like his art of writing for the pianoforte, is peculiarly his own and again is the most fitting imaginable to the quality of his inspiration. It is often striking. The introduction to the last movement of the first symphony, the coda of the first movement of the second symphony, the adagio of the fourth symphony are all points of color which as color cannot be forgotten. And in all his works for orchestra, this is what Hugo Riemann calls a Gothic interweaving of parts which, if it be not a subtle coloration, is at any rate most beautiful shading. On the whole, it is inconceivable that Brahms should have scored his symphonies otherwise than he has scored them. As they stand, they are representative of the nature of the man, to which brilliance and sensuousness were perhaps too often to be trusted. Much has been made of the well-known fact that not a few of his works— and among them one of his greatest, the quintet in F minor for pianoforte and strings, were slow to take their final color in his mind. The D minor concerto for piano and orchestra was at one time to have been a symphony. The great quintet was originally a sonata for two pianos. 
the orchestral variations on a theme of Haydn, too, were first thought of for two pianos, and the waltzes for pianoforte, four hands, were partially scored for orchestra. But this may be as well accounted for by his evident and self-confessed hesitation in approaching the orchestra as by insensitiveness to tone color. The concerto in D minor is opus 15, the quintet opus 34, the Haydn variations opus 56. The first symphony, on the other hand, is opus 68. After this, all doubt of color seems to have disappeared. Analysis of the great works is reserved for later volumes. The Requiem, the Quintet for Piano and Strings, the Song of Destiny, the overwhelmingly beautiful concerto for violin and orchestra, the songs, the songs for women's voices with horn and harp, the academic festival overture, and the tragic overture, the works for pianoforte, the trios, quartets, and quintets for various instruments, the four mighty symphonies, all bear the stamp of the man and of his genius in ways which have been hinted at. No matter how small the form, there is suggestion of poise and of great breadth of opinion. It is this spirit of expanse that will ever make his music akin to that of Bach and Beethoven. Schumann's prophecy was bold. Some believe that it has been fulfilled, that Brahms is in truth the successor of Beethoven. Whether or not Brahms will stand with Bach and Beethoven as one of the three greatest composers, it is far too early to say. The limitations of his character and of his temperament are obvious, and his music has not escaped them. On the other hand, the depth and grandeur, the heroic strength, the power over rhythm, over melody, and over harmony belong only to the highest in music. He was of the line of poets descended from Schubert through Schumann, but he had a firmer grasp than they. His music is more strongly built, is both deeper and higher. Its somberness has been unjustly aggravated by comparison with Wagner, but the time has come when the two men are no longer judged in relation to each other, when they are found to be of stuff too different to be compared any more than fire and water can be compared they are sprung of radically different stock. It might also be said that they are made up of different elements. If with any composers, he can only be compared with Bach and Beethoven. His perfect workmanship nearly matches that of the former. But Bach, for all the huge proportions of his great works, is a subtle composer, and Brahms is not subtle. The harmonies of Bach are chromatic, those of Brahms, as we have seen, are diatonic. His forms are near those of Beethoven, and his rugged spirit as well. His symphonies, in spite of the lyrical side of his genius, which is evident in them, can stand beside those of the master of Bonn and lose none of their stature. But he lacks the comic spirit, which sparkles ever and again irrepressibly in the music of Beethoven. He is undubitably a product of the movement which, for lack of a more definite name, we must call romantic. And though it has been said with truth that some of the music of Beethoven and much of Bach is romantic, it cannot be denied that the romantic movement brought to music qualities which are not evident in the works of the early masters. The romanticists in every art took themselves extremely seriously as individuals. 
From their relationship to life as a whole, to the state, and to man, they often rebelled, even when making a great show of patriotism. A reaction was inevitable, tending to realism, cynicism, even pessimism. Brahms stood upon the outer edge of Romanticism, on the threshold of the movement to come. He took himself seriously, not, however, with enjoyment in individual liberty, with conscious indulgence in mood and reverie, but with grim determination to shape himself and his music to an ideal which, were it only that of perfect law, was fixed above the attainment of the race. If, as it has been often written, Beethoven's music expresses the triumph of man over destiny, Brahms may well speak of a triumph in spite of destiny. That over which Beethoven triumphed was the destiny which touches man, that in spite of which and amid which the music of Brahms stands firm and secure, is the destiny of the universe, of the stars and planets whirling through the soundless, unfathomable night of space. Not man's soul exultant, but man's reason unafraid, unshaken by the cry of the heart which finds no consolation. 5. The drift of Romanticism toward realism is easy to trace in all the arts. There were, however, artists of all kinds who were caught up, so to speak, from the current into a life of the spirit, who championed neither the glory of the senses, as Wagner, nor the indomitable power of reason, as Brahms, but preserved a serenity and calm, a sort of confident, nearly ascetic rapture, elevated above the turmoil of the world, standing not with nor against, but floating above. Such an artist in music was César Franck, growing up almost unnoticed between Wagner and Brahms, now to be ranked as one of the greatest composers of the second half of the century. He is as different from them as they are from each other. Liszt, the omniscient, knew of him, had heard him play the organ in the church of St. Clotilda, where in almost monastic seclusion the greater part of his life flowed on, had likened him to the great Sebastian Bach, had gone away marveling. But only a small band of pupils knew him intimately and the depth of his genius as a composer. His life was retired. He was indifferent to lack of appreciation. When, through the efforts of his devoted disciples, his works were, at rare intervals, brought to public performance, he was quite forgetful of the cold, often hostile audience, intent only to compare the sound of his music as he heard it with the thought he had had in his soul, happy if the sound were what he had conceived it would be. Of envy, meanness, jealousy, of all the darker side of life, in fact, he seems to have taken no account. Nor by imagination could he picture it, nor express it in his music, which is unfailingly luminous and exalted. Most striking in his nature was a gentle, unwavering, confident candor, and in his music there's scarcely a hint of doubt, of inquiring, or of struggle. It suggests inevitably the cathedral, the joyous calm of religious faith, spiritual exaltation, even radiance. His life, though not free in early years from hardship, was relatively calm and uneventful. 
He was born in Liege in December 1822, 11 years after Wagner, 11 years before Brahms, and from the start was directed to music by his father. In the course of his early training at Liege, he acquired remarkable skill as a virtuoso, and his father had hopes of exploiting his gifts in wide concert tours. In 1835, he moved with his family to Paris and remained there seven years, at the end of which, having amazed his instructors and judges at the Conservatoire, among whom, be it noted, the venerable Cherubini, and won a special prize, he was called from further study by the dictates of his father and went back to Liege to take up his career as a concert pianist. For some reason, this project was abandoned at the end of two years, and he returned to Paris, there to pass the remainder of his life. At first, he was organist at the Church of Notre Dame de Lorette, later at St. Clotilde, and in 1872, he was appointed professor of the organ at the Conservatoire. To the end of his life, he gave lessons in organ and pianoforte playing, here and there, and in composition to a few chosen pupils. He was elected member of the Legion of Honor in 1885, not, however, in recognition of his gifts as a composer, but only of his work as professor of organ at the Conservatoire. He died on the 8th of November, 1890. At the time of his marriage, in 1848, he resolved to save from the pressure of work to gain a livelihood an hour or two of each day for composition, time, as he himself expressed it, to think. The hours chosen were preferably in the early morning, and to the custom, never broken in his lifetime, we owe his great compositions, penned in those few moments of rest from a busy life. He wrote in all forms, operas, oratorios, cantatas, works for piano, for string quartet, concertos, sonatas, and symphonies. With the exception of a few early pieces for piano, all his work bears the stamp of his personality. Like Brahms, he has pronounced idiosyncrasies, among which his fondness for shifting harmonies is the most constantly obvious. The ceaseless alteration of chords, the almost unbroken gliding by half-steps, the lithe sinuousness of all the inner voices seem to wrap his music in a veil, to render it intangible and mystical. Diatonic passages are rare. All is chromatic. Parallel to this is his use of short phrases, which alone are capable of being treated in this shifting manner. His melodies are almost invariably dissected. They seldom are built up in broad design. They are resolved into their finest motifs, and as such are woven and twisted into the close, iridescent harmonic fabric with bewildering skill. All is in subtle movement. Yet there is a complete absence of sensuousness, even, for the most part, of dramatic fire. The overpowering climaxes to which he builds are never a frenzy of emotion, they are superbly calm and exalted. The structure of his music is strangely inorganic. His material does not develop. He adds phrase upon phrase, detail upon detail, with astonishing power to knit and weave closely what comes with what went before. His extraordinary polyphonic skill seems inborn, native to the man. Arthur Cocard said of him that he thought the most complicated things in music quite naturally imitation, canon, augmentation, and diminution, the most complex problems of the science of music, 
he solves without effort. The perfect canon in the last movement of the violin sonata sounds simple and spontaneous. The shifting, intangible harmonies, the minute melodies, the fine fabric as of a goldsmith's carving, are all the work of a mystic, indescribably pure and radiant. Agitating, complex rhythms are rare. The second movement of the violin sonata and the last movement of the prelude, aria, and finale are exceptional. The heat of passion is seldom felt. Faith and serene light prevail. A music, it has been said, at once the sister of prayer and of poetry. His music, in short, wrote Gustave de Repas, leads us from egoism to love by the path of the true mysticism of Christianity, from the world to the soul, from the soul to God. His form, as has been said, is not organic, but he gives to all his music a unity and compactness by using the same thematic material throughout the movements of a given composition. For example, in the first movement of the prelude, chorale, and fugue for piano, the theme of the fugue, which constitutes the last movement, is plainly suggested, and the climax of the last movement is built up out of this fugue theme woven with the great movement of the chorale. In the first movement of the prelude, aria, and finale, likewise for piano, the theme of the finale is used as counterpoint. In the aria, again, the same use is made of it. In the finale, the aria theme is reintroduced, and the coda at the end is built up of the principal theme of the prelude and a theme taken from the closing section of the aria. The four movements of the violin sonata are most closely related thematically. The symphony, too, is dominated by one theme, and the theme which opens the string quartet closes it as well. This uniting of the several movements of a work on a large scale by employing throughout the same material was more consistently cultivated by Franck than by any other composer. The Concerto for Piano and Orchestra in E-flat by Liszt is constructed on the same principle. The D minor symphony of Schumann also and it is suggested in the first symphony of Brahms, but these are exceptions. Germs of such a relationship between movements in the cyclic forms were in the last works of Beethoven. In Franck, they developed to great proportion. The fugue in the prelude, chorale, and fugue, and the canon in the last movement of the violin sonata are superbly built, and his restoration of strict forms to works in several movements finds a precedent only in Beethoven and once in Mozart. The treatment of the variation form in the variation symphoniques for piano and orchestra is no less masterly than his treatment of fugue and canon, but it can hardly be said that he excelled either Schumann or Brahms in this branch of composition. Franck was a great organist, and all his work is as clearly influenced by organ technique as the works of Sebastian Bach were before him. His orchestra, Julian Terceau wrote in an article published in Les Ménestrels for October 23, 1904, quote, is sonorous and compact, the orchestra of an organist. He employs especially the two contrasting elements of strings, eight-foot stops, and brass, great organ. The woodwind is in the background. This observation encloses a criticism, and his method could not be given as a model. It robs the orchestra of much variety of coloring, which is the richness of the modern art. 
but we ought to consider it as characteristic of the manner of César Franck, which alone suffices to make such use legitimate. End quote. Undeniably, the sensuous coloring of the Wagnerian school is lacking, though Franck devoted himself almost passionately at one time to the study of Wagner's scores. Yet, as in the case of Brahms, Franck's scoring, peculiarly his own, is fitting to the quality of his inspiration. There is no suggestion of the warmth of the senses in any of his music. Complete mastery of the art of vivid, warm tone coloring belongs only to those descended from Weber and preeminently to Wagner. The works for the pianoforte are thoroughly influenced by organ technique. The movement of the rich, solid basses and the impracticably wide spaces call urgently for the supporting pedals of the organ. Yet they are by no means unsuited to the instrument for which they were written. If when played they suggest the organ to the listener, and the chorale in the prelude, chorale, and fugue is especially suggestive, the reason is not to be found in any solecism, but in the religious spirit that breathes from all Franck's works and transports the listener to the shades of vast cathedral aisles. Among his most sublime works are three chorale fantasias for organ, written not long before he died. These, it may safely be assumed, are among the few contributions to the literature for the organ which approach the inimitable masterworks of Sebastian Bach. There are three oratorios, to use the term loosely, Ruth, the Redemption, and the Beatitudes, belonging respectively in the three periods in which Franck's life and musical development naturally fall. All were coldly received during his lifetime. Ruth, written when he was but 24 years old, is in the style of the classical oratorios. The redemption, too, still partakes of the half-dramatic, half-epic character of the oratorio. But in the Beatitudes, his masterpiece, if one must be chosen, the dramatic element is almost wholly lacking, and he has created almost a new art form. To set Christ's Sermon on the Mount to music was a tremendous undertaking, and the great length of the work will always stand in the way of its universal acceptance. But here, more than anywhere else, Franck's peculiar gift of harmony has full force in the expression of religious rapture and the mysticism of the devout and childlike believer. It is curious to note the inability of Franck's genius to express wild and dramatic emotion. Among his works for orchestra and for orchestra and piano, are several that may take rank as symphonic poems, Les Iolides, Les Chasseurs Maudits, and Les Gent, the last two based upon gruesome poems, all three failing to strike the listener cold. The symphony with chorus, later arranged as a suite, Siche, is an exquisitely pure conception, wholly spiritual. The operas Hulda and Grisel were performed only after his death and failed to win a place in the repertory of opera houses. It is this strange absence of genuinely dramatic and sensuous elements from Franck's music which gives it its quite peculiar stamp, the quality which appeals to us as a sort of poetry of religion. And it is this same lack which leads one to say that he grows up with Wagner and Brahms, and yet is not of a piece with either of them. 
He had an extraordinarily refined technique of composition, but it was perhaps more the technique of a goldsmith than that of a sculptor. His works impress by fineness of detail, not for all their length and remarkable adherence of structure, by breadth of design. His is intensely an introspective art, which weaves about the simplest subject and through every measure most intricate garlands of chromatic harmony. It is a music which is apart from life, spiritual and exalted. It does not reflect the life of the body, nor that of the sovereign mind, but the life of the spirit. By so reading it, we come to understand his own attitude in regard to it, which took no thought of how it impressed the public, but only of how it matched in performance, in sound, his soul's image of it. With Wagner, Brahms, and César Franck, the Romantic movement in music comes to an end. The impulse which gave it life came to its ultimate forms in their music and was forever gone. It has washed on only like a broken wave over the works of most of their successors down to the present day. Now new impulses are already at work, leading us no one knows whither. It is safe to say that the old music has been written, that new is in the making. An epoch is closed in music, an epoch which was the seed time of harmony as we learned it in school, and as, strangely enough, the future generations seem likely to learn it no more. Beethoven stood back of the movement. From him sprang the two great lines which we have characterized as the poets and painters in music. And from him, too, the third master, César Franck. It would indeed be hardihood to pronounce whether or not the promise for the future contained in the last works of Beethoven has been fulfilled. End of section 32